John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 615.PS14717, certificate number 23725. The Ice Trade. This is an example of one of those those instances where I had a really good idea for for an omnibus, and then in researching the omnibus episode i uh i discovered a, a a subset of that show that i liked even better you got off on a sidetrack i did i i sidetracked we see this happen with with one another a lot this is the whole premise of the show was that we would sit we would sit around tacos and say you'll never guess what i learned the other day and then the other one would say oh that is like a, something I learned. And it was always like, oh, you found it because of some other thing. And, were, why, and why are we still doing this, but just without the tacos? We took away the only good part of it. We did. <laughs> I guess because nobody wants to hear taco chewing <laughs> in an audio medium. We did. We lost, uh, we lost like the, the actual fun part. But I, I am reserving, as again, we so often do, the right, I'm reserving the right to do the other show. The actual show. Are you going to take us behind the scenes and tell us what the original would have been, or do you prefer to leave I, us in suspense? Yeah, I'm gonna. It's a whole. This is going to be a whole new subset of shows, which is just me researching this one topic and deciding that other stories have to come first. You could do like a twenty part series. Yeah, right. We've never had a cliffhanger on Omnibus. No, this could be like normally uh, we just talk for three hours. <laughs> this could be drunk history, except neither of us are drunk. We just it's drunk on tacos. Wait, we don't get tacos or booze. No, we're never going to get booze, but but we do still like tacos, both of us. Let's do a, like a six, we have a 600th anniversary show coming up. Let's just do it while eating tacos. 600th anniversary? Well, it'll be the 600th show. Oh, I see. I guess it's true the anniversary means year. Yeah. That's, a- the, Anna. An, that's the Anna part. <laughs> what, uh, what's, what do you think all the, all the people that love to listen to the show while they're doing other things would feel, how, how would they feel if we sat just, eating tacos. Well, let me ask you, is it a is it a hard shell taco or a soft shell taco? I like both. I do too, but maybe for podcasting, maybe you want a soft tortilla. Crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> I have to sometimes take out my chewing gum before we do a show. And it's gotten now to the point that when I wake up in the morning, I have to remind myself, no gum on Wednesdays. 
You've got a thing above your bed that says no gum on Wednesdays? No gum on Wednesdays because I don't like – I like to chew my gum for several hours, long past the point that most people would have gotten rid of their gum. Do you leave it on the bedpost overnight? I don't. It loses its flavor. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> but I, uh, I do I – do, I would show up here and have, you know, kind of halfway through a gum chew and then I'm like, what am I going to do with this? I'm not going to like sit it over here. I thought you were going to say I sometimes wasteful. take out my gum before I eat a taco, which I, I recommend. I have done that. You should certainly do that. The thing is you don't want to put your gum back in after a taco. Do you feel like you don't want to be gum guy? Mm. Like the, the, you know, the cultural stereotype of gum is like, hey, look at me. I'm an 11-year-old girl. Um, what I do is I do it when I, I chew gum when I'm working in the forest. So no one can make fun of you. Yeah, and it's like a something for my mouth to do while I'm, you know, while I'm exercising, when my work is happening. But if people run into you at the store or I'm at not the like, bank, you're hey, not. Hey, how's it going? You're not too, okay. No, no, that's bad. Gum is your forest treat. Gum is a forest treat. A lot, yes, of, people that's right. a lot of people don't know that. Do you, actually, <laughs> do you actually make your own gum from pine resin as you're in the forest? That would be my next, that would be the next thing. If I were a curly mustache back to, <laughs> uh, right. back to Red Wings guy, but I. But and and also, not. if you wanted gum that tasted like pine oil, which you probably don't. I don't. I'm a, I'm a uh, minty gum. Back person. when flavor didn't exist, you can understand why people would be like, I'll just chew pine resin. It tastes like something. But once you've eaten two things, you're like, Pine resin is the less tasty of those two things. Well, actually, it's our, out of the rotation. Our show today is about a time back, bef- well, before there were so many tastes. Before flavors. And then flavors became really popular and taste, you know, people started to taste more things. And let's just say that flavors and taste did exist at the time. It's just that white people didn't have them. Well, but different flavors and tastes, right? White people had some flavors and tastes and uh, people from other places. That's the thing. Local flavors and tastes. It's true. I mean, at the same time as we were like, I can't believe it. Like Thai food and Indian food actually tastes like stuff. We should eat more of this. They're thinking, man, this McDonald's and fried chicken is delicious. We should eat more of this. Exactly. Well, and also think of all the people in Italy who were like, a tomato. What can we do with this? What a fascinating thing. We don't have to eat plain olive oil on our uh, <laughs> on our long pasta anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like now we have a little glob of cheese, some globs of basil, and then... Something, a third ingredient. Something red. We can make our flag that color. That's right. Hey, there it is. The world is flat. If you think, so this show is also about <clears throat> something that was initially not compatible at all with Marxism. And then over the course of over well, about, well, a hundred years. Marx was proved correct. It became more and more compatible with Marxism. That's what always happens. The That's inevitable right. ascent toward a socialist utopia. And it happened where, where Marx was just standing there watching it. It's, you know, I don't, I, Marx isn't on record about it. Did Marx talk about it much? <laughs> but he would have been around. It would have been happening all around his, his ankles. Well, tell us what this worker's paradise is. Okay. The, the, like the proletariat wants to know. So the localness of food has always been one of the truest things about food, right? You, you, you sow the seed, nature grows the seed, and then you eat the seed and, and the cycle repeats. This did not occur to me until I was an adult and I started to see restaurants where this was the gimmick, farm-to-table stuff, everything's from within a 100-mile radius. Right. Did this ever occur to you as a child in the grocery store? Like, well, this rice might not be local. Well, except that I guess I'm just old enough to remember a time when the grocery store had um, 
the uh, you know food ripened at different yes. times, and so you got the new food that wouldn't have been available over the winter. Even millennials do not understand that grocery stores used to have three or four fruits. Tops. <laughs> and yeah, we brought up bananas, and that was a big deal. But you, there were no other. You can just count on a greenhouse or Chile providing you with nectarines or eggplant out of season. Yeah, stuff's coming from all over now. Crazy distances. Food, food. Uh, transits the globe and and when i was a kid that wasn't true right you never saw a pomegranate um let alone a whatever a mango Dra- dragon fruit yeah that was not a that was not stuff that you found you did get canned fruit all year but but the you know the localness of food was particularly uh true about foods that spoil um there was not a beef industry for instance, there were cows, and if you wanted to get cow, if you wanted to get beef from here where you grew cows to a place where you didn't grow cows, you moved the cows. We're going back to a time before frozen food. Is it the early twentieth century we're talking about, or well, so or further back, so all the way back to ancient times. Okay, we're back in Babylonia. We're in Babylonia, and there's no beef. Uh, there's no beef, uh, or you know, Babylonian beef. It mo- moved to Arizona. <laughs> but move to Arizona. <laughs> Boy, we're so deep now. There's like six people that are like, I get all those. I get that reference. But um but it's all it's always been the case, right? If you were to slaughter a chicken and wanted to make food out of it. Pretty big if for me. And there were there was a limited amount of time that that chicken was useful as food. Right. And, and so, and probably they had longer limits than we do, but they still had limits. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's limits where it starts to get a little gamey that we might pass on it. Then at that point, I'm like, I'm going to do a voodoo ceremony instead with this chicken. Yeah. My daughter is always like, this is expired. She picks up some yogurt and she's like, it's expired. And I'm like, that is a fake thing. Yogurt just gets better. Don't, don't teach your kids weeks. that expiration dates are fake. Well, they are basically <laughs> fake, but also like she is such a stickler. Like this says December 12th and, and it's December to her, it's like a rule. Yeah. It's like, that would be like standing on your desk at school. Yeah. It's expired. It says right on it. I was eating a hummus the other day, a little pack of hummus, and it seemed like maybe it was a little sour, and I was like, why is this hummus sour? And it was like, best eaten before March of 2022. Yeah. And I was like, why is this in my fridge? But also, it seemed like, I, you know, I didn't get sick. It, yeah. was, it wasn't the best hummus I'd ever had. No, it got comfortable in your fridge, and it just stayed there. It said, I live here now. It had a little home. But there are, you know, canned foods have expiration dates on them. Now, after a while, it will start to taste a little... Whatever, metallic. I guess. But it's fine. Um, most foods are fine. The expiration date is just, it's part of a scam. It's just big, it's just big food. Big date. Yeah. They're the, just uh, trying to get you to, I mean, if a food looks weird and it smells weird, yeah. Well, they, the funny thing was when they put expiration the dates on the COVID tests oh. and saying, well, this is going to be gone in nine months. And the funny thing is we had no way of knowing because nine months ago, a COVID test did not exist. You know, there's no there's no prior art here to show us right. what happened at the nine month period for COVID tests because we are in month seven of those things existing, and so at some point the government kept being like, okay, if it says this summer, it's actually next summer. If it says next winter, it's actually the following winter. But that's the funny thing. Think about all the hundreds of thousands of COVID tests that got dumped into a landfill because somebody was like, these are expired. I understand most medications you can actually keep too. It's just that uh, depending on what it is, it might get less effective. 
Like if you have, if you're taking an uh, expired Tylenol, you might want to take, you know, two instead of one. I'm eating Tylenol that have expiration dates in the nineties. Cause that, that was the good stuff. Well, and I just, you know, you, you're, you go from one house to the next and you're like, Oh, I still have these Tylenols. And then pretty you're, soon you're going to come up on the poison Tylenol pretty soon. You better check those dates. <laughs> Ooh, 82. I don't know. Well, as far back as ancient Greece, it was recognized that if you iced your food, if you put it in a in cool spot, it uh, took less long to spoil. Is that the way you would say it if you spoke English natively? Took, took less long to spoil. It t- took less long, take t- less long to spoil. No, you yes. could preserve it longer, right? Yes. And um, And so the wealthy in ancient Greece in the hot months understood that if you went up to the mountains and got some ice, I mean, they were just as smart as we were. So it's not like they understood it. They, they applied this idea, like go get some ice in the mountains and it, the ice will stay unmelted long enough to get down here and keep my chicken. Um, and Greece is a good spot for this because it's a, it's a hot Mediterranean climate in the summer, but with mountains nearby where you could get ice and snow a lot of the right. year. It's not a hotbed for this, but it's a cold bed for it. Well, and it was very expensive to do. You know, it required, you couldn't transport that much ice, and you had to be a fancy pants enough to... Send a servant in a tunic. Yeah, so it was not a widespread practice. And that remained true for most of the two millennia between ancient Greece and... Really? So in a lot of these cultural high points, there were rich people who were like, if I have some snow, I can eat fruit year round. And in fact, it became a kind of symbol of real wealth that you had an estate large enough that in the winter you would harvest ice from your ponds and then you had on your estate property an ice house where you would take the pond ice Store it in the ice house. You know, you would you would put a ring of peas around the Kick it around, in the, ice around hole. the hole <laughs> when the bear came to take a pea. Um, and so it was, you know, part of of showing extravagance. Part of your wealth would be to serve something with ice. And this goes back centuries. Some Medici or or, uh, or Duke in. 13th century England might have this going on? Yeah, people understood it. It was just extremely expensive to keep ice around. You needed a house. You needed to build a house just to hold your ice. Did they have the sawdust technology? I don't understand why, but isn't sawdust very important here? Sawdust figures into our story, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they covered it with straw. They just made a they made a place that they could keep cold all year. They and, had insulation. And then you would throw a party and there'd be ice, you know, chilled drinks. And it was like... Uh, is there a wealthier thing? Can you can you be uh, ostentatious any more than to serve a chill drink in July? Can you imagine the miracle? Like uh, it's a time when things are so simple that even the small pleasure of a cold drink in the summer is out of the hands of ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people. Yeah, it, no, and nobody can believe they're drinking a cold drink in the summer. It would have been extraordinary, and really, for most of that time. It wasn't used as a, as a place to preserve food. It was primarily... Big ice sculptures of swans. Well, just, just like the, the, what would be so amazing about, about a cold drink. It's just a magic trick. Like, yeah. look at this luxury good we have. Yeah, right. Like, a, like bringing out an old bottle of wine. It wasn't a... 
It wasn't something – the household didn't run on preserved meats and vegetables and fruits. No, no. Still most meat and vegetables and, and rarely fruit um, were locally grown, consumed within days or hours of its, of its uh, untimely picking or death. And, um, and also, you know, the supply of it limited to what you could grow within, within that time period, grow and harvest close enough to you that it makes it to you unspoiled within that time. It is funny and I could wait, but I think I'll forget. It is funny that this eventually boomerangs back to, to the ultra wealthy, just wanting to eat at places where there's a $300 tasting menu of locally picked things only, no preservation. Right. Which in January in Seattle means seaweed and clams. Right? I hope you like uh, <laughs> squash. I hope you like root vegetables because you're going to be eating turnips all winter. Well, and root vegetables could be preserved in root cellars. Yeah, they had apples. Yeah, just by keeping them cool. I think the apples get brown and wrinkly, but hey, if, uh, but what if that, you're an olden timey guy, that's that's a treat. What that was was a summer commodity being preserved unto winter. Right. Right. And what oh, we're yeah. talking about is this other thing, which is how do you how do you have this stuff in the summer and have it still be frosty. There were always cold drinks in the winter. You don't want them. You don't want them. You want wassail. You want a hot, hot drink. Do you, um, was there an industry of people like the, the guys at the beginning of frozen, these dumb Kevins out there sawing up the surface of the fjord or whatever? Like, did that happen yet? No, that is the technology that is mostly a thought technology, um, that, that our show is about because the hard thing about a big chunk of ice is transporting it. Right. Uh, and until really the late 18th century, there wasn't any way you could carve as many blocks of ice as you wanted. But again, you're limited. How do you get it to the Baron's castle? Yeah. You're going to put it on a cart, cover it with, with hay and. It'll melt by the time you get there. Right. And still. And I'm starting so, to see the hole. So still a very rich person kind of, of thing. And again, you also had to be living in a place where it was cold enough in winter that you could collect this ice to keep it until summer. So if you lived in the Southern Hemisphere in, or in, uh, or in even, Equatorial. Or even much of the Mediterranean, yeah. you're out of luck, right? It would have been a thing, you know, if you were in Italy, you could go up to the north, collect ice, and bring it down. But, but again, just a, just a, um, a wealth, what, what am I, what, it's a luxury item. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to find. But then starting in the, in the very early 19th century, transportation had gotten quite a bit, uh, there had been major improvements in how fast you could go from place to place. Is this a train thing or does it predate trains? Trains come in to it, but no, this predates trains. This is just, um, this is just that there now are a lot of cities particularly in the United States that are connected, interconnected by roads and, and waterways and sailing ships have matured into a kind of, you know, a very dependable and pretty fast moving industry. Um, and a man by the name of Frederick Tudor, who's a kind of wealthy New Englander, who's, you know, always tinkering with different, startup ideas. I love that this is American tech. Yeah. Yankee ingenuity. Take that Europe. He comes up with this. He, 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 by this point in time, ice houses had become a real status symbol with American 
estates. And it was a, a, as you gained wealth, an ice house was one of the things that you built. It's like having a pool. Yeah. It wasn't a thing uh, that only princes and dukes could afford anymore. You could have a few acres or a nearby pond and have your own ice house. And he saw this as a, as a sign of wealth in New England and, and just thought, well, now wait a minute. I could get into this business. I could build a bigger ice house, in other words, and then be able to transport, you know, to have enough ice that I can then transport it places. And at that, at that time, 1800, um, the Caribbean was a really booming area for colonialists, uh, for, you know, British right. in short trousers and making you know, getting sugar through very mean labor practices. Exactly. This, this was the, the time of the American South and the Caribbean being, uh, you know, an affluent, agrarian, slave-driven sort of culture where there was an awful lot of sitting around uh, in your tall socks. Watching... Watching people other work. Other people work for you. While, you, while you're kind of sweltering. Hmm. And he devised a he came well, he came up with a julep this was a bi- this was a business scheme where he was going to start taking new england ice down to the caribbean in in ships and it was kind and he probably of didn't know if it was, he didn't know if it was possible basically like this is some guy like inventing the cell phone right cuz it's not clear whether you can even do this yeah and he had he had um i mean he was trying to get investors in it and he was widely regarded as a total kook like, huh? What? You're going to do what now? Because uh, it sounds impossible. You're going to have ice in, in the Martinique? summer. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. That's not a thing. It's not a thing, and also, like, this is not going to work, right? This ice is going to melt. It's going to. Nobody needs ice. It's not a thing. But it immediately was. I mean, the the first shipment from Maine, he didn't. He hadn't gotten his ice house. In order? Stuff in order. And, you know, most of it melted. He arrived there with a ship full of water. Yeah, it was just like, womp, womp. But he he realized what he needed. He went to Havana. He built a big ice house in in Havana and then would bring the ice down, put it in the ice house, and then from there be able to distribute it throughout the Caribbean more widely. Just as a non-industrialist, I'm I'm actually kind of surprised by the idea that you – this uh, 19th century technology can keep ice frozen all summer in Cuba or whatever. But I guess insulators are really good insulators and they had access to good enough insulators even 150 years ago. It turns out that you can keep ice pretty cold if you keep it cold. Hmm. Um, like ice doesn't, ice wants to melt, but you can you can prevent it from melting on a large enough scale. Yeah. Right. And you can, basically you're controlling the heat transfer from the outside. And if you build a big ice house and then you fill it with ice, it's keeping the new ice cool. Right. It's a, it's a cold space. How, how hard is it to keep the temperature below 30 degrees? If it Fahrenheit, if the outside temperature is 98 degrees. I guess my experience with this is only like how long your fridge stays cold when the power goes out. 
Right. And usually you can get a couple days. Yeah, but you're opening it and closing it, and you're like, which do we have to eat first? We have to get this hummus out of here. They must be so strict. They must be like, you can't open the door of the ice house. Well, and so... Just quit looking in there. He, uh, he the, the, the initial success of the business sort of starts to attract competitors. And one of the things that he realized in his, uh, in his transport of ice down to the Caribbean was that if he, if he kept a little bit of the ice in the hold, he could then take Caribbean produce back. Oh, because he's got an empty ship. He's got an empty ship that's cold. He accidentally invents frozen food. Right, and so all of a sudden he's returning with these fruits that would never have been available in Boston or New York. Um, all these sort of tropical commodities. Uh, so a lot of people in New England jump into this marketplace because they're like, this is, you know, this is actually kind of dumb and easy. This dude's printing money. Yeah, all we do is is chop up ice in the winter and magically it turn it into oranges. He becomes a, an early monopolist where he. It's hard to it's hard to get a monopoly on ice. It is, except he can't own all the ponds. What he what he gets a monopoly on is ice houses. Oh, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Like so he, he builds all these ice houses enough that he can price gouge. Mm. So other, you know, ice merchants come down with their ice and he's like, ice on sale, one cent per kilo and way below, you know, right. uh, just, what he's losing. He's dropping the price of Uber or Tesla, basically. And then everybody, you know, gets bankrupt out of the ice business and then he then controls he can, the whole market. Then he can quadruple prices. So he his it's ice the American business, way. it is it is his ice business, um, you know, starts to include southern cities in the United States, Charleston, Savannah, all these places where you don't have to take the ice as far, and people are very wealthy in those situations, and um, and he and actually this is where the mint julep comes from, and there were no there were no cooling drinks back then. There weren't. Um, and there was, I think, suspicion that ice was unhealthy. Oh, really? Yeah, that ice was dirty or, you know, that it was contaminated. Well, people are always having weird ideas about temperature, yeah. right? Like, oh, your your body can't have a cold drink. It's this, it's uh, it's July. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna like, make you die. Like you can't eat cherries and cold milk on a hot day. But it but. Americans are quick to adopt this because they like icy. Again, it's mostly drinks. It's like icy drinks. Is it alcoholic drinks? Is then, this this is being this is being fueled by America's drinking problem. Oh yeah, like let's 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 put booze in this and and you know the thing about like for instance German lager, it's a it's a drink to be it's beer to be served cold and it doesn't. It doesn't cut it in hot weather. You, you know, lager spoils. Okay. So there are, um, like the beer industry was seasonal. And you wouldn't make these cold beers in summer. So Oktoberfest is like, hey, we can have beer again. We're back. Beer, it's like McRib. <laughs> beer is back, Bavaria. Uh, but he he then really starts to understand that he's he is able to use his his shipping network and his network of ice houses to start moving perishable goods in addition to just selling ice um 
And then in, a, in the 1830s, uh, a man by the name of Nathaniel Wyeth, who actually is a, it was a kind of mountain man explorer who pioneered uh, trips out to the Northwest. Hmm. He came and established Fort Vancouver, or or arrived at Fort Vancouver and and um, is that just helped develop it on the northern bank of the Columbia? That's yeah, where I mean, Fort Vancouver was there, I guess, since Lewis and Clark. Yeah. But but um, you know he established Fort William, which became Portland, hmm. as part of you know experimenting with the fur trade. But one of the other things he did was invent a horse pulled ice cutter that could then really uh, standardize the size and shape of a block of ice. This was some this was like big big tech at the time. Now we we're not just out here with pickaxes trying to take ice out, but now we've got this machine. I'm trying to imagine what it is. The ho- the horse is actually pulling some kind of contraption that's making a saw blade go Yeah, I mean I don't know what a horse drawn saw or ice cutter, but uh, yeah, it's, it's got to be it's saws. Some wagon behind the horse. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they started. They realized the insulating properties of sawdust, and so they started to buy sawdust as a byproduct of milling wood. Up here, it's it's you know just junk that they're going to throw away otherwise, right? And in fact, the demand for sawdust to preserve ice was so high that they started opening sawmills that were only producing sawdust. They're cutting down virgin forest and yeah. making sawdust out of it. I'm sure old growth trees <laughs> yeah, that they I were know. just like, more sawdust for the ice business. Be, I feel like you could reuse last year's sawdust. These guys are not environmentally minded. Let's, well, I bet you could. Re- let's recycle the sawdust, gentlemen. I bet you could, although it's wet sawdust at that yeah, point. Yeah, you put it out in the sun all summer. Yeah, there you go. Spend the summer. Well, no, because the summer is the big market. You just have to put it out, and then you have frozen sawdust. I guess that's true. There's not, there's not really a time of year when you can. I'm just wondering if you could keep the sawdust in the ice house, but you need to get it back to the, you need to get back to the source of the ice. Right? Keep the sawdust in the ice house sounds like a some kind of whimsical like sex metaphor. That's right. Listen, just keep your sawdust in the ice house at least through the summer. It's like a kind of a sex joke you make to a ventriloquist's dummy. <laughs> wow. Well, 1830s. This is a time of great boom in British India, oh, colonial India. There's a market for... There are a lot of people drink, who want to drink mint juleps who are wearing tall socks and short pants. There's more verandas than ever before. That's right. It's a, it's a veranda boom. And, and so Frederick Tudor actually pioneers taking ice to India. Oh, it's not coming from the Himalayas or whatever? Where is it? Where is his ice coming from? <laughs> it's coming from Maine. <laughs> that's, that's efficient. It's amazing, right? That, that, he's, that he's figured out how to transport ice around the world. And even though there's ice in the Himalayas, I mean, there's yeah. ice all around, um, this is, the, he's made this so that it is a profitable business. Otherwise, you'd have to have all the infrastructure to get it down the rivers to the to the Deccan Plateau, and he's going to save you from that trouble. Right, by coming right to your port with a clipper ship full of blocks of ice and sawdust. And now he's realizing that if he's going to take ice out, he can also take American apples and butter. I see. With along in cold storage. Yeah. So now he's selling ice and also produce that normally would have a very short shelf life in its place of origin. 
And it's exotic stuff, right? American apples in Brazil, pretty exciting. To you and me, not exciting. Not that exciting. Hey, guess what I got? Apples and butter. You're not going to freak out. And then he's bringing sugar and tropical fruit and, and ultimately, you know, he gets into the cotton trade. Chicken tikka. But people do, um, people do start to recognize, like people in India say there are closer ice. There's closer ice. Probably to us. people realizing they could maybe undersell this guy. And this is the, you know, this is the East India Company mentality. Like, oh, this is, he can't control ice houses everywhere. This is not compatible with Marxism yet. Not yet. Not yet. Um, so by the 1840s, now most of this period, ice is still a real luxury in Europe and in England. Um, he was, uh, Tudor was really interested in this American ice trade and then expanding to India where, you know, he's like, well, ice is going to be worth money in hot places. Why would it, you know, in England? Yeah. They, they're always cold and yeah, shivering. Cold and wet. Um, but the, but in Britain, ice was regarded as a kind of, well, ice was a little gross, right? It, the, the kind of slushy ice that they would bring down from the Hebrides uh, they, had, they hadn't had our good main ice yet. And there was, even then, and this is still true today, as I'm sure you've seen, um, Americans really loved icy drinks. Mm. And in England and Europe, you know, there were some icy drinks, but there wasn't this kind of icy, like even in the early 19th century, Americans were putting ice in their drinking water. They wanted... Well, to this day... Yeah, like go to a European cafe and try to get a nice cold glass of water. Oh, they'll roll their eyes right out of their heads. Go back to America, Ugh. you Ugh. pig dog. Yeah, uh, warm warm water is like how water is meant to be consumed. Whereas in America, it's like, well, there's not enough ice in that in this water. It's just hitting me for the first time. This is why all soft drinks come from our side of the Atlantic, right? Coke. Pepsi, 7-Up, Mountain Dew, Dr. Burr, all invented, you know, within 50 years of each other. No European competitors, really. Orange Crush, but that's only because of the Nazis. Yeah, well, that was, yeah the one we did the show on, Yeah, right. right. Africola. But that was just a, a, a clone, Euro clone of our icy soft drink technology. Because if you don't have ice in your drinks, a nice cold Coke does not appeal. Right. Nobody wants room temperature Coke. Well, and by the 1840s, they had really perfected the kind of refrigerated car, uh, and refrigerated with ice blocks, but like they had built these railroad cars, for all intents and purposes, that they could carry cold, uh, because that's increasingly what it was. We're just carrying cold. We're, we're putting... Railroad cars, but... Yeah, we're, and this is early railroad, but we're, you know, we're able now to transport things so that they won't spoil. Uh, a man by the name of Charles Lander, who uh, is another New Englander, who lived on a uh, lived on a lake called Wendham Lake. He is successful in advertising Wendham Lake or Wenham Lake ice. It was Wendham a second ago, now it's Wenham. There's no D. Wenham. Okay. Wenham Lake. Charles Lander, a New, a, a New Englander. Yeah, or, or Charles Lanner. No, <laughs> but there is a D in Lander. That's a relief. Uh, Wenham Lake, he successfully advertises Wenham Lake ice uh, 
as healthier ice. There's a. It's just like the beginning of the our pure spring water, like yes. Poland Springs. Wenham Lake has a certain kind of. There's a, a, a way of the spring that feeds it that creates ice that freezes because you know there's ice. Bad ice is opaque, right, and crumbly, whereas good ice is like clear and. This dude just invented taste the Rockies. Like all beer advertising comes from this one, Don Draper genius. So Wenham Lake Ice, it becomes a brand name in England such that uh, no one there wants any ice except Wenham Ice. Wenham ice. And it is a, it's a super smash. Charles Lander becomes like a ice mogul. But right at that same moment, someone invents... A, a new ice cream maker up, you know, there had been ice cream, but it was extremely labor intensive to make ice, ice yeah. cream. And now there was a way to use all this ice to create ice cream on a much larger scale. And the Italians immediately are like, Oh, we, Hey, we know about ice cream. So this is the first time there's like a warehouse full of ice cream. It's not just one guy on a porch with a hand crank. And ice cream then is all the rage. And prior to that, ice cream wasn't available to anybody. It was some kind of thing, you know, that you make once a year where everybody... To keep, to keep the kids happy. Yeah, everybody is, uh, the whole farm is engaged in this process. And now you can get ice cream in cities as a, as a commodity. So ice cream is part of this massive ice boom. And the sales of ice are now through the roof because this is also a time of of great urbanization in the United States. Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Baltimore, these cities are exploding and the price of ice keeps coming down as more and more people enter the market. And so now ice becomes a middle class, it's available to the middle class. And you can have ice where you never, you have no capacity to store it yourself. There's no... um, there's no barrier to entry. And so not only are you able to have ice and ice cream, but also you're able to get fish and right. uh, fish, which would have in most cases always been from the fishing boat to the table within a very short period of time. The only way to eat fish is the, basically the day. Yeah. Or it was to smoke salted, it salted, or salt yeah. it. Right. But, but there was no f- kind of, fresh fish unless you lived right by the coast and and got the fish right off the docks. And now all these new kind of this new availability of food increased the market for that food. And does the middle class have like a little ice house out back or what do they have something in their house? Like is, is ice delivery, is ice home delivery a thing yet? So ice home delivery starts. Um, the ice box takes a while, but ice houses proliferate. You've got a little shed out back. Or yeah, something. you can you can um, keep ice, but also just in the local market. Uh, you you we saw this. I mean, I don't know if it's still yeah, it's still true at the butcher shop. You go in and all the seafood is laying in a bed of ice. That's right. So this became a, a new. A new development. Did your mom ever say ice box? Yeah. Or did you have older relatives that said the ice box for the fridge? Well, my mom grew up in a house without electricity. Right. 
So they had literally an icebox. But to her, was it still, the electric one was still the icebox sometimes? It still is now. I mean, I don't know the, I think think she says fridge now, but when I was, certainly when I was a kid, it was the icebox. My parents said fridge, but I remember grandparents sometimes saying icebox and thinking like, what are we, Laura Ingalls Wilder? The icebox. I think it was common enough, because of course my dad was an earlier generation. I think it was common enough in my family that it never occurred to me. It never, I never put it together that it was connected in any way to, it was a box where it made ice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the ice machine. But I didn't think I didn't think it was weird that it was called an ice box. And I, until you just said it, I it wouldn't have occurred to me that it was weird. But yeah, ice box. Um, I think that those days are done. I think like, they are. Like you would hear commercials as late as the eighties, where somebody would be like, "Go to the ice box and get a Sunny D, or you know, yeah. get a popsicle." And I think that's gone. Yeah. Generation Z will never write in cursive and they won't call it an icebox. Gen X killed the icebox. Gen Z killed the icebox. Um, and then you had the gold rush in California and a lot of money out there and a warm climate. The ice industry extended to California. They started, competitors started bringing ice down from Alaska, but it was also the burgeoning era of railroads. Oh, this is a plot point in East of Eden by Steinbeck. Yeah. Like, can you get a railroad car cold enough to get Salinas Valley, What you know, because California is now growing figs and spinach and lettuce and strawberries, and how far can you get it? How far can you get it, and can you make it cheaper to bring it by rail than to bring it by ship? Right. And so there was this economic comp- uh, competition between people bringing ice down from what would have still been Russian <laughs> North America... <laughs> Versus bringing ice from New England across the country in refrigerated cars. But w- what it did then was, was transform the uh, cattle industry, the pork industry, the stockyard industry. Because up until then, if you, like I said earlier, if you wanted pork or you wanted beef, those things would have been... You have to drive it to your city alive, That's right. right. Drive it to the city alive and then, you know, have have abattoirs or abattoirs That's right. and butcher shops. Did you like in, abattoir too, the way of water? <laughs> but think about the meat packing district in New York, right? That would have been, um, that would have been a local enterprise everywhere. But now Chicago and Iowa and the Midwest, which had been uh, stock transportation hubs, started to realize they could process that meat in Chicago and then send the the processed meat out. They were like, we can be hog butcher to the world. We're going to, you know what? Previously, we've been <laughs> hog butcher to Joliet and Peoria. <laughs> what if we were hog butcher to the whole world? Look, we're going to soak the ground in blood here <laughs> and send pork chops around the world. So that whole idea of the Midwest being a hub for meat, uh, processed meat, Developed because of the ice industry, the ice boom. Can't do it without ice. Can't do it without ice. And it was initially like a real problem for, uh, for the stockyard people and the butchers of, of these different regions. But you know, there was no competing with the cheaper price of this shipped, you know, because of the scale, this shipped meat. It just drove a lot of local butcheries out of business. Right, I was just thinking about that, like how near cities, there was a time when people probably still 
had their own livestock. Yeah. And, you know, because that was the only way to, to have chicken on hand or, or pork when you wanted pork. And now, now all those little small farms and butcheries don't need to exist. Yeah. Now, again, you walk into a store and you've got your fish on ice and you've also got all this, this packaged meat. Um, around this time, I'm talking about the, you know, the pre-Civil War United States, there was now also the beginning of a kind of industrialized ice making plant. Um, Instead of just getting it from a pond? Yeah, ice, ice, cooling using technology had, had also been a thing people were working on, a chemical there were different chemical processes that used sulfuric acid and, you know, like... They're endothermic, so you combine the two things and the temperature goes down. Yeah, like, and a lot of them, like, bad chemicals and sketchy processes. And also, on, uh, to, in order to get it at any kind of useful scale, it required a lot of energy. You had to create a lot of pollution and a lot of... Um, and just, you know, use up a lot of firewood Expensive and coal. ingredients too, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't super practical, but this demand for ice now as a global commodity meant that places like Australia, where it just wasn't practical to bring ice from anywhere, um, started to say like, well, actually, we do need, we do want ice, and it's easier for us to build these kind of... Let's just have a plant. Yeah, these, these plants. Um, by... By the eighteen, you know, the mid-century, uh, the U.S. was exporting sixty-five thousand tons of ice a year to the world, and it was, um, you know, it was a, a an industry a, worth hundreds of millions. Yeah, of that's dollars. a big enough scale that it's like a major export. You wouldn't think of that as on the list with steel or oil or wheat or whatever, but it's on that scale because of what it facilitated, right? It wasn't just icy drinks anymore. It was now an industry of moving things, moving perishable goods around the world. Yeah. Which introduced the idea of an ice famine. So there were multiple instances where a warm winter would, would ruin huge batches of ice. There goes your supply chain. And then all of a sudden, there's no ice available. The price of ice skyrockets. Ice price gets nice. <laughs> that, you know, in turn, increases the price of a lot of perishable goods. Because people still have those goods that, you know, they've, they've grown all the expensive whatever, and they'll pay whatever it takes to keep it colder. They're going to have to just watch all that stuff go bad. Yeah, that's right. So, so an ice famine becomes a major economic problem, you know, a major, a major driver of... I mean, there are ice panics um, because what happens is an ice famine drives up the price of ice. A bunch of people see that they can make a fortune within ice because the price of ice is so high. They get into the ice business and then you have a really cold winter. You're three years into your ice business thinking ice is 17 cents a Prices Pond. collapse. Prices collapse because there's so much ice on the market, and then you know your business fails. A time machine would solve a lot of this because you could just import ice not from a different place but from a colder year. Oh, I thought you meant you could look up all the years of ice famine <laughs> on your phone and then go and back then go in short, time. Short the ice stocks. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I want to write a book where somebody imports ice from the future, or you know, sends it to the past. 
I mean, if you have time travel technology, you probably also have refrigeration. So maybe that's not a thing. Well, what we talked about um, the competing railroad gauges. One of the real problems in the in the railroad gauge wars of the mid eighteen hundreds was that ice needed to move fast, and engage engage changes mean mean you're just sitting on the siding, stopping at stadium uh, at terminals. Right? Yeah, you're just your ice is out there melting, and so. Ice trains were some of the first to have changeable gauge trucks in order to, to keep the ice, you know, the ice must flow. How, do, how did we not talk about this back in change of gauge? Change of gauge really, uh, really had so much to talk about that we never got to the ice farm. The ice part issue. of it. Well, so now globally, like Norway's getting into the game, um, at one point in Norway, they renamed one of their lakes, Lake Opegard. Meaning? It's the lake of uh, where they guard Opas. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> oh. Lake Opegard means. Well, why would they rename Gerd. it if it doesn't mean anything? No, they renamed it Wenham Lake. Oh, I see. And are now... They're stealing the brand. Yeah, they're flooding the English market with Norwegian ice, but they're calling it Wenham Lake Ice. That was like the urban legend about some city in Japan that was called USA, so they could put Made in USA on there. Oh, that's clever. On their cameras and stuff. USA. I don't know if that's true. I think it's not true. But so after the Civil War, you've got, um, you've got a ma- massive ice infrastructure. There, New York City has, alone has 1,500 ice wagons wow. just dra- you know, uh, bringing the ice man's coming. And um, he's like, and this also, you know, dairy now can be, um, you can get butter and milk in ways that it wouldn't have been available to you um, even 10 years prior. And the ice wagon is a a major feature of of urban life. But by the late 19th century, you're experiencing, there's a, uh, temperatures overall are starting to rise. Ice is no longer forming on, um, on Walden Pond. Oh yeah, there was like a little ice age in the early 19th century. So yeah, so now up, it's warming. Northeast was colder than typical, and pollution is starting to make oh. a lot of the close-in ice ponds kind of gross. Like there's pollution getting into the water, right? And ice is sort of skanky, and so a lot of this is pushing the technology of building plants that can make ice on on its own. Um, and so ice being made by plants is what had formerly been kind of crumbly and, and chemical and expensive ice is now getting cheaper, cleaner, and, and more prevalent. Um, and so, and also, you know, I forgot to mention like the shipment of beef from Chicago to New York then expanded to become an international, a global market for American beef and pork. Normally, previously, no overseas market for that. It wouldn't have been, right. you know, you would have had to smoke the meat. Now, in the UK, American beef became a, a prized import. American beef seen as superior to British beef, which it remained. Because of all the mad cow. Yeah, that's right. British beef, totally gross. 
Um, and so the companies of Armour and Swift, oh. which still are both major uh, meat exporters and meat producers here in the United States, are all founded in the mid-1800s. I always said Armour. Is it Armour because of the U? I think it's Armour. Uh, what about Oscar Mayer? Does the Wienermobile emerge at this time? Not yet. Being drawn by <laughs> a team of horses? <laughs> a team of ice-cutting horses. Do they have Zambonis driven by horses? But like American beef exports went from 15,000 tons to 176,000 tons during a period of just a decade. Wow. But by the 1890s, plant ice, plant-made ice, not plants, but made in plants. Factory ice. Factory ice catches up to... Native ice, pond ice, as it's called. Um, And just toward the end of the 19th century, does it start to really occur to people that now they can refrigerate spaces and they don't need the intermediary step of ice? Right. If you can, yeah. The same process that'll make ice form will make a building cold. Exactly. Without ice. Um, and so this is the dawn of we're not, you know, uh, making ice is not just for mint juleps. We've, this is now a major component of global trade, keeping things cold. And we can just build shipping containers that have no ice in them at all. Refrigeration begins. All the people that were supplying water are like, but what about the water? It used to be that. Like transporting beef in an ice cooler required a, a circulation. You couldn't just put beef on top of ice. Beef will go bad on top of ice. Okay. You have to hang beef and put ice in different arrangements so that the air is moving. And, and then Rocky can punch it. That's, that's what, right. That's oof, big. oof, oof. Now refrigerated cars had this... Um, had this air circulation as a component. So by, you know, 1914, the advertising had changed and now pond ice was considered contaminated. Pond ice at one point was... uh, That that was the gold standard. Well, yeah, and now some, you know, at one point, some unscrupulous uh, campaign started promoting the idea that typhoid was spread by pond ice, and what you really wanted was the pure, delicious, right, uh, plant-made ice. You just have to make an ad telling people, get this, not that; it's better, and they, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's like saying Lucky Strike is toasted; it doesn't mean anything. And even as late as 1900, there were still, you know, heat waves. And price f- fluctuations in pond ice enough that that uh, a lot of you know m- monopoly capitalists were practicing like really like price gouging uh, fights about ice fights over ice so much so that a man named uh, Charles Morse came very close to being prosecuted for his like ice shenanigans. It, during a you know during a massive heat wave, but it was it was really I mean World War One came in and all of the refrigeration technology <coughs> was converted to war processes. Yeah, so there was like a a, a last brief resurgence of pond ice 
uh, during World War One. But after that, the war and all the all the Depression era technologies. By 1930, there were there were refrigerators, like home home refrigerators, kitchen refrigerators that you could buy. I mean, it was still a, that was a wealthy, uh, uh, you know, a, a symbol of wealth. My mom didn't see her first electric refrigerator until I don't know when, um, World War Two probably. But then post that, the the Panda Ice business just collapsed and it was still you know still into the 1950s there was a small local artisanal pond ice business there were still ice men in you know rural areas but most of the world that was electrified very quickly became that's the first thing to go you, you don't need a horse bringing you blocks of ice every morning exactly but there was then also by then a global refrigerated marketplace where meat, milk, beer, ice cream, uh, fruit, vegetables uh, became then a thing that were increasingly, and now in our day, of course, you can get any food from around the world at any time. You don't even think about it. You assume temperature is just a variable, you know, yeah. that. There's a slider somewhere and you could have any food, hot or cold, at any time. But really, that's 150 years old. And it could also fall apart immediately if anything, yeah. if anything happens to the grid. Right, the solar flare. All that, all that uh, fish goes bad on the... But, you know, think about how much fish we eat. Right. That, and a lot of food now will say never frozen as a way of indicating, like, how fresh and good it is. But most of what we eat has been on a bed of ice. Or in a, or hanging in an ice room. Think how ready Europe is for the for whatever the catastrophe. You know, they'll be like, "Well, our, we've been drinking room temperature Pepsi for decades in preparation for this moment." Well, I think what what you and I should do is find who owns the brand for Wenham Ice <laughs> and bring it back as a kind of artisanal pond ice that can only be used in certain vodkas and like, oh, you know. Farm to table, except we we only serve one of mine. I can Im- totally imagine some some hipster Seattle or Portland restaurant that serves all its drinks with pond ice. Pond ice, and that's why that's why this um, mojito seventeen dollars. Yeah, whatever. right. I mean, think about it's pond ice. Think about going by, going through a door that has a little peephole in some New York City basement, and it's like the incredibly cool supermodel bar. Only pond ice. I can't remember where we were, but we were there was one expensive drink that had smoked ice in it. Ugh. I don't, and, you know, that's not a thing. I have an experiment here. I have a can of Dr. Pepper that I brought from home. It's yes. been out of the fridge for four or five hours. Warm. It was, it was kind of, but it, it's not so bad. It was sitting, I guess, on, a, on your basement carpet here in winter. And it's actually, uh, yeah, it's actually doing okay. Like, I wouldn't send it to India. Still, still nice and cool. I, don't, I wouldn't surround a, a boat full of persimmons with uh, cans of this temperature Dr. Pepper, but it's doing okay. Well, you know, ice... Fancy ice has been a real thing in the last decade here in the United States. Yep. How to make a cube of ice that has no frosting or, or and no cracks. Is this like, like a bartender thing? Yeah. This is a, a real mixology holy grail? Yes. High how, quality ice? How you serve your cocktail on, on fancy custom ice. How to make your own ice cubes and make them um, you know, clear and pure and certain kind of cube like they're they're in these bars like 
boiling their ice six times and, and, um, it's well, just like seasoning your cast iron pan. There's the internet has 700 guys with curly mustaches on there telling you how to do it. Ice making tech all the way from Park Slope. Well, I, I don't drink, but I, I think I'm ready to become one of these insufferable mocktail guys. Mm-hmm. All trying out new herbal uh, extracts and, and bitters varieties. On fancy ice. It's, yeah. It's time for me to get into artisanal ice. You know, I came back from touring in Europe really convinced about warm water. Like that it's good? Yeah. Because you can drink it instead of like, bleh. Oh, you don't like the, you don't like this little sip that gives you a... No. An ice ice cube headache? No, it's bad for you. So now I'm the guy that says, water, no ice. Oh, you're so European. And and the waitresses are always like, what? Come on. Sitting at the cafe in your little short shorts. (laughs) And my pith helmet. Asking for warm Pepsi. Mmm. And that concludes the ice trade. Entry 615.PS14717. Certificate number 23725. In the omnibus, uh, FutureLink's social media has melted away like ice, but in our time, we were at Omnibus Project, probably at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick at various places. Probably. The good replacement for that would be the FutureLink's uh, outposts, communes, colonies. That's right. That they, have, uh, that they have founded that now dot cyberspace. Look for FutureLink's on Facebook or Discord or Reddit. That's a fun little gathering place. It is. Uh, you probably have complaints after listening to this episode and the frustrating podcast feeling of having no one to talk to about them. And mm-hmm. John and I don't care. Uh, Yell into your headphones. That's how much we care. <laughs> but you know what you could do? You could go find other FutureLink's with similar frustration. Yeah. You could all yell together. This is collective action. Uh, that's how change happens. Yeah, that's right. Omnibus will get better because of all of you yelling at us on uh, mm, subreddit yelling at each other yelling about at us, us through each other yeah. yeah make them our proxies can you believe what they yes yes they can uh you can email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com uh, send you could send physical items in our era to p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 i'm opening this now from what do you got there? It seems like it might be Tom of Finland related. Yeah. I'm seeing, Is it a t-shirt? I'm, with se- I'm seeing bulges. Some some buffy guys. I'm seeing some nice contour shading. Do, what, what are the circumstances where you could wear a Tom of Finland t-shirt? Is there any place that you would wear that and feel like, yeah, I'm comfortable in this? I mean, how, what is a Tom of Finland T-shirt? Well, it's a T-shirt no with a nudity, picture of but it's a, got tight jeans. Yeah, a guy with a with a like a cop hat on and no shirt and really tight jeans. I would say at a funeral, I would do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mostly a wedding at my perhaps. funeral. <laughs> Justin says, while listening to the Tom of Finland episode, I became curious, of course, to see what his first appearance and cover for Physique Pictorial looked like. That must have been one of the uh, the the fine periodicals we mentioned as part of Tom of Finland's entree into American. Oh, there we go. I should have just kept reading. It was the early Beefcake magazine that introduced him to a wider audience. I loved the cover design. I figured it must be some kind of collectible, but was pleasantly surprised to see it on eBay for a pretty reasonable $125. Buy it now. Whoa. Like his first cover. He offered to sell me 70 more for 250 and though I kindly declined, I, I kindly declined. He was nice enough to throw a few more into the mailer. Somebody has a mass quantity of Tom of Finland number one. For, first appearance of uh, 
of this superhero here. And and so is this it? This appears to be it because because uh, the seller threw in a few extras. I'm keeping the first for myself as an art piece. Oh no, he kept the he kept the first one. But here are other co- Tom covers of later editions. Two here are two later issues of. Physique Pictorial, Volume 13, Number 1, and Volume 15, Number 3. Let me see With those. lots of pictures of manly men inside doing to- Exercise. totally normal hetero things like exercising naked, showering with a monkey. Huh. Um, That's also a, a real famous gay thing to do, shower with a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I am not going to queer shame anybody for their monkey showering. Um, yeah, physique pictorial is exactly what you'd expect, and he says he would like us to wrestle over them. Oh, boy. So that'll be a video bonus for Patreon <laughs> subscribers. We'll be you and I wrestling over the Tom of Finland pictorial. You'd, you'd probably be pretty sneaky as a wrestler. Oh, here they are. There's a guy in jodhpurs who's being forcibly showered by three guys in jock straps. Just because a normal, because just a normal thing. A, a normal thing that happens at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> a normal, totally straight thing to do. Absolutely straight. The funny thing is, there it's purely, um, it's purely kind of uh, homoerotic pictorials inside, f- photographs inside. But the covers are always on the front. This beautiful Tom of Finland work in pencil, graphite, and on the back, uh, someone else who is not good at Tom of Finland doing a similar thing. Oh, that's interesting. That is a look at very bad Tom of Finland. That's Tom of Maine, and, and he's, <laughs> his toothpaste is good, but his his figure drawing is terrible. And it's all still about physiques. You don't see any. You don't see any chubs in here. Although you know, well, that's, like there's a whole there's this whole sub industry of. That's um, because there's nothing sexual about physique pictorial, John. It's about bodybuilding and fitness. Exactly. And there's nothing at all sissified about that. There's a lot of smiling wrestlers in here. Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. What happened there? Well, I just got into the showers. Well, after you, after you uh, do your bodybuilding, you got to hit the showers. Hit the showers. Peter in Indianapolis has sent us, uh, perhaps without any annotation or explanation, his book, The Malphabet. Uh-huh. Is it about is it by Ralph Malf? <laughs> it's all about how Ralph Malf learned to read, which apparently he did surprisingly late. Potsy taught him. Uh-huh. No, it's got an owl with Mondrian coloring on the front. It's a beautiful I uh, see cover. That. And then each page has a single two-word phrase that many of which are cryptic. For oh. example, this spread will say terrestrial carnivore. Yeah. But then on the right hand on the recto page it says nominative determinism. Okay. Later so what on, do we do with that? Later on, fish, fish psychology faces off with namespace pollution. And are, are are we meant to find a connection between those two pages? I thought there would be a note here telling us about his book, but apparently it stands it stands on its own. Oh. Here, I'll turn to a page, and you and I have to wrestle over whether we get purpose pitch or emotional facts. Well, I'm all about emotional facts, which I know you aren't. Well, you have you have perfect pitch. You have is perp- that different than purpose, purpose pitch? pitch. And he also sent us a record. This must be his band? Maybe it's not. E- it's either a record called Holy Liars by Fury of the Days, or it's a record called Fury of the Days by Holy Liars. Or it might be Fury of the Days versus Holy Liars, and it's, and it's somebody reading the history of Malph. Yeah, because Ralph Malph was so bad at reading. It could be Holy Fury and Liars of the Days, but only if the kerning is very odd indeed. I like Liars of the Days. <laughs> well, there you go. You got a new band name. Are you sometimes it'll pop up on my radio or Spotify or whatever, and it'll be the artist and the and the album and the song, and I 
I will not remember which order they're supposed to go That's in. That's super true. Am man. I reading a song called Quattro by an artist called Raisins off an album called Goodnight Elaine? Or is it an artist called Goodnight Elaine and a song called Quattro on an album called... It's all very difficult. But I mean, I'm going to assume... That's better than the, the bands you see on festivals sometimes where it's like, the band is Q94V <laughs> and the song is... I can, on the lineup poster, I can't get down to that far in the eye chart. I, I can't see anymore by the time I get down to that font. You're like, okay, I recognize Blondie and Beach House, <laughs> and then I'm out. Well, um, Peter, thank you so much for sending us this cryptic book and record. And uh, if you would care to send any follow-up instruction, I'm sure we would love to know. But I kind of like it on its own. Here, John, you can, you can read about the mouth of that. Just, uh, just... Oh, boy, you can just get that a little closer to old dad here. That's good to stretch. Um, You can be like one of the photos in Physique Pictorial. Dignity Battalion. Helicopter Chicken. See, some of them are not real things. Negative Risk. Mm -hmm. That seems like it might be real. Yeah, Victory Disease. Well, yeah, okay. About half of these seem like they could come from some Jack Welch business book. But I do feel like Victory Disease, if if I sit with that for a second, that feels like something you'd put on the refrigerator. But I think maybe our problems as 21st century society is partly Victory Disease. Exactly. Too affluent. Too affluent. Punic Latifundia. Uh, I mean, Punic just refers to the Phoenician Punic But what is Latifundia? That look, seems like a word you would look know. up your look at your wrestling magazines and see if it's part of the part of the rear end or something. Latifundia. Latifundia are uh, Roman and then more recently Spanish and Latin American plantations. Oh, so, so it's like a hacienda or something. Punic Latifundia is yeah, it would be it would yeah, have been a thing. It would have been a thing in ancient Rome. Oh Let's, my god! Is there a single Google result for Punic Latifundia? There are. The, 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 the academic research is full of references to Punic Latifundia and their slave-based economy. Interdasting. Here I have open to theater sports opposite energy vampires. Both of which are ways to describe improv. <laughs> theater sports and energy vampires. Thank you for sending that along. Um, if you don't have a cryptic book of two-word phrases to send us, first of all, shame on you. Yeah. But uh, where's your Punic Latifundia? Second, please sell your Punic Latifundium mm. and its Hellenistic slave trade that you really should get out of mm-hmm. uh, and donate the proceeds to the Omnibus Project by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash, is it Omnibus or Omnibus Project? I can't remember. Omnibus Project. It is Omnibus Project. Uh, you can partake in extras like a monthly addenda show with more things to come in 2024. You know, during the pandemic, I was looking at Punic Latifundia. I just didn't know what to call them. I th- it was like, I'm going to move there. I was very afraid I had uh, Punic, Punic Latifundia. And my, yeah, my doctor just said, put some talcum powder down yeah. there. And it's, it's been fine ever since. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Providence allows we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.